I actually see the landscape right now as a crazy opportunity. Because the playing field has been equalized, I strongly feel that anything goes in terms of problem solving. So if you have an idea that you've always thought, wouldn't it be great if, why not now? When else but now? The only difference is, it's really for me a mindset thing. The factors that would have hindered you before COVID still exist today. So COVID is just one more rung on that ladder, but it's not the rung that all of a sudden makes it impossible to pursue anything. It is the rung, though, that makes a lot of other people nervous about trying that new thing. So why not you? Hi, Offscripters. It's your host, Sewa Ajay Pele, and welcome to episode 119 of the She's Offscript podcast. This is a show where we hear and learn from women who've created unique blueprints for business success. My hope is that you'll hear their stories and translate their gems into a unique path for yourself. In today's episode, we meet Free Forgendom, co-owner and chief development officer of MyCo2. One day in college, Free looked up and noticed that while she should have been studying for the MCATs with her peers, she was rehearsing lines for a spring musical instead. Her lifelong love for theater landed her in a startup that builds theme parks and immersive experiences you may recognize from the likes of HBO's Westworld or Prince's Paisley Park. During our conversation, we talk about everything from her failed attempt at becoming an actor in New York to the tactics and mindset it takes to play big as a new business. Before we hear the rest of Free Story, I would love it if you could subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes. This will help to spread the word about our podcast so amazing stories like Free's can continue to inspire women looking to launch their own off-script journeys. The She's Offscript podcast also has a membership community to help you launch and grow your business with resources and coaching. Join our Boss Offscript community today by going to sewaajpelly.com forward slash community. With that, let's go Offscript with Free for Dindom, co-owner and chief development officer of MyCo2. Free for Dindom, welcome to She's Offscript. Thank you for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Now, for any of our listeners who haven't heard of you, could you share who you are and what you do? Um, you know what? That's a great question because I'm just still trying to figure it out. Every day <laughs> is a new invention. But um, so I work in themed entertainment and experience design. That is uh, our craft or our industry. My company is called MyCo2, short for My Company 2, based on a philosophy that we want our partners and our clients to feel just as part of our company as we are theirs. And what we do is we tell stories. We are storytellers at heart that, you know, never quite grew up from the theater and somehow landed onto an industry that pays us uh, to dream big and to build big um, and to make fun for, for other people so that they can have memories. So that's, that's really the, the ecosystem of what I do in themed entertainment and experience design. Now, for any of our listeners right now who are still like, I don't really get what it is you do free. <laughs> Um, so Come again, what is this? Yeah, what what exactly is this? And so I feel like maybe this example might galvanize that for us. And I think HBO's Westworld may be one of the more recognizable projects that you guys have had. Could you walk us through what your role was on that project and what it took to bring it to life? Uh, thank you for asking. Um, so the short of what we do is we design and develop guest experiences of different scales. 
because we're storytellers and we all come from the theater, um, we are fortunate because we get to build and tell stories in real space. So unlike going to a movie theater where you're watching a story and it's a little bit more of a passive experience or going to a theater um, uh, show where there's some, maybe some level of interaction, we're building the world around you. It's an immersive world where you come in and you get to explore and play, be moved, be inspired, be educated. Um, and so my official role at the company is as chief development officer. I lead biz dev um, communications and branding, but I still get to do creative uh, direction or executive creative direction on a few key projects. Cause you know, I, the theater will never go away. Like I still need to get that fixed. Um, and so HBO's Westworld was a, a great example of how these different art forms can come together. We were approached, my co-to was approached by a marketing agency called Giant Spoon here in, in Los Angeles. Um, and we had already had previous relationships with them on working on other activations, but they approached us um, because they had they already had the relationship with HBO uh, on board to, to produce a marketing experience for them uh, for South by Southwest, which is, as your listeners may know, um, is a pretty high profile you know, conference that happens in Austin, Texas every year, or at least it did. Um, it'll come back next year, knock on wood. Um, and so our task was, they had already sold the idea of, of building Sweetwater, which is the fictional town that Westworld is based on, at least the first two episodes, or first two seasons, sorry. So they had sold them the idea of building Sweetwater, and then they came to us, and they're like, okay, we, got, we need help in, in doing that. And it really was an awesome marriage, because Giant Spoon is a fantastic marketing agency. They understand the, the digital influencers for communication and how to roll that out. We came in to make the world come to life. So uh, there was a certain like a piece of land on the outskirts of Austin that was essentially this like shantytown, uh, you know, Western town, legitimately shantytown, Western town that we came in uh, and in collaboration with, with Giant Spoon, rebuilt Sweetwater, we, and then my co-to specifically, we wrote the script um, uh, that all the actors and brand ambassadors would use to inhabit the space. We created all the different interactives that you could do. So if a guest came in, you were shuttled in on a bus, you had no idea where you were headed, and then you landed into this amazing like Western town in the middle of nowhere. There were 90 performers, all characters that would interact with you. You could have followed one character on their journey for eight hours, or you could have followed multiple. You could have been there for an hour, you could have been there for 10 hours, and people were. And there was just so much to do. If you arrived, there would be, there was a post office, there was a salon, there was a, 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 an actual barbershop where you could get like an old school shave. There were hidden gems where you could discover things and then it would unlock portals into like, you know, some of the, the, the spaces that were identified with the show. And this was all in anticipation of season two, which was coming out at the time. And it blew up. Like, this is stuff that we love. We love to play. We love performance. We love theatrical experiences, we had no idea the reception that it was going to have. So it was a three-day event for South By. And in that three days, I think there was a limited invited guest only of 1,500 people. And that, those 1,500 people were able to spread the word. And we got 1.9 billion online impressions just from that three-day event. And wow. it was like, we, the, when we came back to the office, we were like, wait, is this for our thing or is this for something else? Because like, what? You know? 
Um, but it was just a lot of fun because you're building, you know, you're building a world. You're taking off the fourth wall of, of theater. Um, you're getting rid of the proscenium and you are inviting people um, to be immersed in that world and to interact with characters and to just go on their own journey. And, you know, if you're smart, make money off of it, you know? So that's what we get to do. And HBO's uh, South by Southwest World was a great example of that marriage of theme park design, theatrical development, experience design, live event, spectacle, gameplay um, with marketing chops. All of those things coming together. It was such a memorable experience and one that I'll never forget. That sounds incredible. Yeah, my role was just to be able to talk about it. You know, I have a fantastic team. David Wally, who's my business partner, uh, was the creative director on that. And we had a, an amazing team underneath him with Bonnie Holman and a bunch of other people. And, you know, so in that particular project, I just got to show up and be a guest, but to talk about it afterwards was amazing. Um, other projects that I get to work on more specifically, like um, what we did with Princess Paisley Park. Um, but ultimately, we're all hands on deck. We come in as needed and we get to uh, shepherd it to, to opening day. Wow. And I, I think I read that your mother was a successful entrepreneur and your father ran a successful business as well. What was yeah. it like growing up with them as role models? Let me tell you, um, I still stay, say to this day that my mom is my inspiration. She, she's the one who crafted me without even realizing it. So I'm from, originally from Cameroon. That's where I was born and raised. And my mom, uh, back in the 80s, had the audacity to run a grocery store, um, which at the time was just avant-garde because it's it's a very patriarchal culture. Women weren't really encouraged to go into business for themselves. And so for her to start um, a, a retail and grocery chain from our guest room where she would just sort of resell things that she would collect from her travels. And then it eventually grew into this grocery store chain called Mycin. Um, and those initials were for the names of people in my family. And we essentially sold uh, European and American products in West Africa. And let me tell you, the schooling that I got from helping her like shelve things and put actual like stickers on products, because at the time there was no scanning, you had to manually like Old punch school. your price stickers on things. Um, and, you know, counting the money at the end of the day and just customer service and guest experience. I didn't realize then that all of that was in informing how I viewed you know, the world. And my father, completely different um, sort of expertise. My mom was an entrepreneur. She was always like, we say, buy them, sell them. It's a mm -hmm. phrase, <laughs> which is like, whatever you buy, you can sell it. Like she's always trying to hustle for some, some new venture, right? She's an entrepreneur. But my dad was very straight laced very, you know, cause and effect. He was an engineer by training um, and he went on to lead one of the bigger um, engineering companies in the region that built and repaired rigs and oil rigs. So, so different. Um, but I watched both of them grow their companies and sort of support each other and be mm -hmm. parallel to each other in their ventures, which again was so not the norm, you know, in West African culture, at least in the 80s, to right. have a husband and wife duo doing their thing, but still like supporting each other um, and not having to sacrifice for each other, which I guess informs what I, how I see the world now. Exactly. Now, given that you grew up with that backdrop of entrepreneurship and business, 
Why did you feel like you had to go to medical school? Why did you feel like that was the path you were supposed to take? You've done your research. Look at you. <laughs> I try. Snap, snap, snap. Um, you know, it's funny that you phrase it that way. I didn't feel like I had to go to medical school. I felt like I had no choice but to go to medical school. Like, it wasn't even a, a feeling as it was just this is the way to go. Um, mm. um, I don't know how many of your, your listeners are immigrants or relate to sort of the immigrant upbringing but you you do as you're told and if you have the opportunity to uh, be educated in england or or the us which is considered the, a jackpot mm. you better come back with some legitimate certificates like doctor engineer you know lawyer something that won't embarrass the family right <laughs> right, um, right so you know i and and I loved science. I still do. I still try to ex- dig deep and, and question and try to figure out the, the the cause of things, the real root of things, which I guess innately is is scientific is a scientist sort of um, approach. Uh, so m- pursuing medicine didn't feel too much of a stretch. It actually felt like the safe route um, mm. for me. Uh, and you know, it wasn't until third year in, in undergrad where I was like t- at a table in the library and all of my friends and student fellow students were basically studying for the MCATs and I hadn't even given it a second thought. I was too busy learning lines for the play that was coming up and I looked left and I looked right and I was like, wait, you guys are studying for MCATs. Like, when are the MCATs? And they're like, oh, <laughs> You're like how did I get here? <laughs> I don't I even know when the MCATs are. It hadn't even crossed my mind to like look into the MCATs, register, let alone study. And that's when I knew, oh yeah, this is not for me. Like, so by that point, I'd already gone far down my prereqs. So I finished as a biology major because I was like, I'm not going to start over. Yeah. Um, but I walked, uh, the for graduation, I actually walked the stage of the drama department to get my faux placeholder diploma because, you know, I wasn't really a, a part of that, that department. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of where it evolved from there. But, you know, it, it wasn't really a choice. It was just like, this is what you're doing. Um, but thank God I was more of the defiant type. What first drew you to theater? I think I've always been drawn to the theater mindset. I just didn't know the words for it. And so, mm. and the way I think about it is like, it, it wasn't like all of a sudden I stumbled onto Broadway and saw the marquee and lights and I was like, that's it. You know, like it wasn't that obvious for me it's more about connecting the dots um with things that i was always into as mm-hmm. a kid all the way back in cameroon when i was a kid i loved stories i loved watching movies i would lose myself every time my parents traveled to the u.s they would come back with recordings of tv shows on vhs because that's what we did mm-hmm. um, and i would just lose myself in some of these shows and disney came into the scene and my mom would bring home, you know, the box set of Aladdin. It was the the VHS box set and then like behind the scenes booklet. And I remember just losing myself in the booklet, learning about how they drew all the scenes. And I loved it. And I would love, you know, stealing my parents' camcorder and forcing my siblings to record us, you know, <laughs> doing stupid stuff. Like, force my sister to dress up, you know, in makeup and cosplay, essentially, is what they call it now. Mm-hmm. We would just do all these silly things. And it never, I never quite shook it. And I just didn't realize that there was a term for it or a career path. Uh, it wasn't really until I came to, to the U.S. that I realized, oh, people are doing this 
for fun and for work and for like as a as a career and it was you know i slowly had to convince my parents that maybe medicine wasn't the way to go and this weird kooky world called theater was what i was going to pursue so how did you finally make that stand when you say you had to convince them i know you then kind of quietly applied for columbia's mfa program so how did you I, finally come out to them, so to speak? I did, right? It really was a coming out party. Um, the first um, coming out attempt was a bust. It really was a shutdown. It was an undergrad. I went to University of Virginia. Um, and I remember being at odds. I was at this crossroads, like I was saying, trying to pursue medicine and theater. And I wasn't sure. And I started questioning myself. I started second guessing whether, you know, whether this was even a career path. So I remember going online and taking some test to you know to evaluate if you're creative or not i don't even mm-hmm. remember what the what it was called but it was one of those like assessment tests you know that like if you filled it filled it out afterwards it would create some sort of algorithm to say to to describe how your brain works and lo and behold that test was like yep you are creative through and through like the way your mind thinks it's very abstract it's very right brain you know and so that to me was like the ticket i was like that's it. I have my printed test results. I'm going to take it to my parents and tell them that I'm a creative and I can't pursue medicine. And I did. And it failed. It mm. failed. They were just like, no, we are paying for your tuition. You are going to pursue this. And to be fair, you know, they were concerned. They mm-hmm. didn't want me to, you know, not have a source of income and to be struggling. So I, now as a parent, I completely understand what their hesitation was, but you know, it was, it was an immediate shutdown. And my retaliation was basically to just, um, you know, say, you know what, I'm going to go to whatever school and I don't care. And actually, no, sorry, this conversation happened in high school. Now that I think Mm. about it, this exchange happened in high school. And so as a basically like a, as a retaliation in my own way, still good, good, a good daughter, good immigrant student. um, I basically just like applied to whatever I knew were the top schools at the time. And the top public school at the time was UVA as well as University of Michigan. And it was basically my way of saying, F you, I'm going to just go to whatever school, I don't care. Um, And so got into UVA, pursued that, but it never quite left me. That feeling of like, I want to go to New York, I want to try this out, never quite left. So, you know, of course, I still found my way into the theater department at University of Virginia and started realizing that this is where I was coming alive and this is Mm -hmm. why I felt strong and um, and untouchable. And um, it wasn't until uh, when I was towards the end of when I was graduating that by accident, I applied for uh, a visa. So for the listeners that are tuning in, there's this whole world. If you're an immigrant and you come in as a student, you're an F1 visa. Basically, if you can't show proof that you are a student, you are out. And this was pre-current administration, right? Where you know, you were still nervous about being deported or whatever, but Mm. I can't even imagine what it's like now. So that F1 visa that sort of established my status or justified my status was key. And that was the other reason why they were worried about me pursuing theater, because they were like, how are you going to be in the U.S. legally? Right. What Um, jobs are you going to get? Because the employer sponsors you for your visa. Mm -hmm. Exactly. No, No one is going to hire an actress. Sorry. Like, if you're an illegal, that's going to be a, a huge deal breaker, um, at least in their eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I applied for the lottery, which the DV lottery program, which at the time, uh, and I'm, I'm sure it still happens. I'm not, I'm, 
actually don't know how robust it is anymore, but every year, 50,000 applicants out of the millions of people who would apply from all over the world would get selected. And I got selected. I, I won the lottery and I'll never forget. It, it, was, it was actually the, the way it came wasn't even via email. It was through a letter mm. that I almost didn't get because it was buried in junk mail somewhere. And long story short, found the letter. I was jumped, like literally just crying with excitement. My mom happened to be there because she was helping me go through the mail at the time. And the first things out of her mouth, I'll never forget. She's like, now you can pursue your dream. I'll never forget. What a story. I mean, she, she was like, now you can go for it. Right. So I think secretly she wanted, she knew what this meant. And, and I think it was also an extension of her. Um, but now it meant I could go for it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'd already applied to Columbia because I was just like, whatever, we'll see what happens. And, uh, fortunately I got in and now I could be here and pursue it and not have to worry about, you know, being deported. So it was just this whole serendipitous thing coming together. It wasn't even so much me realizing as it was all these extra things that I couldn't control had to happen for me Mm -hmm. to actually be able to pursue it. So I went to New York. Wow. So how do we make the leap from being in New York, attempting to be an actress to now being in LA? That was a trip. So New York was such a great training ground for me. First of all, as New York, like if it, it, not everyone is made or wired for, for that city, but if you do love it and you, you thrive in it, there's something in you that you learn and take from that city that just never leaves and Mm. take that spirit wherever you go. And New York is diverse. It moves. It doesn't, it's not stagnant. And I was lucky and fortunate because I didn't get just thrown into it. I still had the uptown silos, Columbia's, uh, you know, uptown, upper West side. And it's a beautiful historic campus that's kind of isolated. So you can get the best of both worlds where you're isolated in your academic space, but you can also leave, get on the train, hop on the one or whatever and get to wherever you need to be for that creative challenge. Mm. And um, because it was grad school, we were focused. We were, it was a small class of uh, 16 of us, I believe. And we just were with each other night and day. We ate, breathed, slept, theater. And the training that we got was in hindsight, what I needed because it wasn't conventional theater training. It was very, different. It was very experimental. Um, and at the time it wasn't commercial. So it didn't set you up for success. The training was about the craft. It was about the, you know, the, the physicality, but it wasn't something that you could come out and be like, okay, now I'm able to play this part because when you came out of grad school, they were like, okay, but you're homegirl number five and you need to play the person selling McDonald's burgers or whatever, right? Did Whereas, you know that going into the program? No. Oh. no, we went in, at least I went in ready to learn. I was a sponge. And through the program, I felt empowered. I felt like I could do anything. I could mm. play anything. And I did at school. And, you know, as part of our training, we were able to push our and stretch our muscles and play roles that were super challenging and not conventional. And then when we came out, it was a huge reality hit because it wasn't that we weren't able to play these parts. It was that our minds weren't prepared to reduce ourselves to whatever parts were available. Got to start from the bottom, right? Got to start from the bottom, but not just the bottom, the bottom 
with parts that you're just like, really? This is what, and this is what most actors have to experience. So this wasn't unique to us, but man, did it feel like a blow, you know, to have gone through three years and then to come out feeling sort of disillusioned by the industry. Um, and so I stayed in New York for a year after that. And I was starting to book work and I had an agent and all that, but I got tired of the snow. I got tired of people not picking up after their dogs. <laughs> and I was like, that's it. I'm done. I'm leaving New York. I'm going to go to the only other place where I can still pursue this, but I won't, my soul won't die or freeze over in the winter. And so California seemed like the natural fit. Definitely not Chicago. Shout out to your Chicago listeners, but. Ooh, no, no, no. The snow, I could barely do it. I went to school in Colorado. My family lives in Colorado and I love to visit, but man, I remember scraping and digging myself out of snow. Can't do it. Especially if you're a tropical girl, like you're born on the crater. This is not for you. I I love me some sun. (laughs) Sunshine, I need some vitamin D. I need like sweat and humidity and all that good stuff. All of it, all of it. So now you're in LA. A couple years after you joined My Coach, you were at launch. You guys landed your first contract to design two theme parks in Dubai. To me, that sounds like a huge contract for a startup. So how did you guys gain enough industry trust and credibility to land such an amazing contract in a relatively short amount of time? That's a a really great question. And I think about that a lot. And I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, the even though technically we were a startup, so the company was founded in 2011. I, in the summer of 2011, I joined January of 2012. So I was like, it, it had two founders, um, Cliff Warner and David Wally. And then I was employee, I guess, number one, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in January of 2012. And even though we were a startup, our history, our relationship goes way beyond that. And so that's why I always talk to people and say, you even, don't judge your business or your venture on where you are on day one. Judge your venture on the experience that you bring to day one and position yourself for five years ahead. Like, mm. so you have to react to the present, but you, you can't be dis, disillusioned or discouraged by the present sometimes. Um, and so the two founders, David Wally and Cliff Warner, go way back. They've known each other for 30 years. They went to uh, uh, school together. And then when Cliff Warner started a, a company prior, um, it was another des- theme park design company. That's actually one of the first sort of office jobs that I landed when I moved out to LA. So I was done doing the the waitressing uh, thing to, to make ends meet. And I was like, let me at least pursue something that's going to make me feel motivated. And so his company was my first job. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I was there for a little bit I uh, was expecting my first baby and then decided to go on maternity leave and didn't come back because I knew that if I came back, I wouldn't be able to move farther just because of some of the things that I'd gotten to do um, uh, in my growth. I knew that if I came back, I wouldn't be able to come back. I wouldn't be able to pursue it. And context, this was in 2008, right? So the recession had hit mm-hmm. and everyone was super cautious. And so here I am pregnant, being offered my job back legally, because, you know, it's maternity leave. And I was like, no, I'm going to walk from this because prior to maternity leave, I'd gotten a taste of some of the creative direction roles. And I knew that with everyone being super cautious, coming back at this role, I would come back to just being an admin and executive assistant. And I didn't want that. So I took Mm -hmm. the gamble and said, nope, I'm going to stay home or find something else, which was 
crazy at the time. Um, fortunately, Cliff Warner and I stayed in touch and we just had a really good rapport. And so when he started My Code 2, you know, it was an immediate jump on. So I say that to say that even though we were startup, our relationship, our rapport, and the experience and expertise that they brought, definitely more than I did at the time, mm-hmm. um, went back many, many, many years. So it was, a, it was more of a revving of the engine as opposed to a cold startup. Got it. Got it. So they had the expertise. They had the industry contacts. People knew who they were. So it wasn't a stretch for them to be trusted with such a huge project. Oh, no, it, it was a stretch. I mean, we were in the garage. <laughs> well, you know, to that point, I know when you guys landed the deal, you were, you were three people working out of a garage. And yeah. somehow you had to ramp up to a team of 160 plus people who ultimately built the parks. So. Exactly. What was that ramp up like? Because I'm sure as a as a startup, you always say yes and then figure it out later. How did you guys figure that out? <laughs> yes, and like isn't that, that's also the theater mentality, right? Like yes, and, and let me get the answer for you. Um, so yeah, we were it was three of us in the garage, actually four because um, we we were bringing in uh, we had brought in um, a fourth employee by the time we got this job. Um, so the call came in after we had done a small scope of work that was just to help them cost it out. Um, and really let me in full transparency at this point, my role is to help support, like I'm not even driving a lot of the decisions at this point. Um, the call came in saying, okay, great. We love the estimation that you guys put together to basically to help them understand what it would take to actually build a theme park. Um, and then they were like, can you do it? (laughs) Can you now build it? And we said, yes hung up and you know that that scene uh, i think it i'm not even sure what movie it was but it's like we're gonna need a bigger boat mm-hmm. is it from jaws i'm not even sure if it's from jaws but like it was that realization of like okay this garage isn't gonna work we need we're gonna need to hire people like too sweet so everyone starts calling who do you know who who did you work with on such and mind you at this point as well we had a non-compete um our founder one of our founders because he had left his position at the previous company he had a non-compete. So there were a lot of people that we would typically go to, to hire, which turned out to be a blessing in disguise because that forced us to think outside the box and to not hire people based on their resume, but to hire people based on their skill set, on their propensity to learn, on the relationship that we had with them. Um, and just take a gamble and say, okay, you're, you're good at this completely other thing but the tools that are needed for project management in this other industry, we can still translate into our industry. And so by pairing people who are seasoned with young, fresh, new talent, we were able to staff up to 160 designers, architects, engineers, um, draftsmen, costumers, you know, composers, all those different entities that are needed to design and develop two full theme parks. At the How same long time. did that take you guys? Uh, from the time we got the call to when we were at our peak, a uh, hundred, no, it took eight months and we peaked, we ramped up to 160 uh, team members. It, meanwhile, in this whole time, we had to obviously leave from the garage into the house because the garage got too small. So we moved into the house where the kitchen was an office, the living room was an office, the hallway into his bedroom was an office. And then finally, when the refrigerator quit because there were too many people opening and closing. I think at this time, like 30 people, we were like, no, screw it. We need to get a space. So we found a production facility not too far off that became our HQ. Um, and that's where we moved in. 
And literally, as we're having meetings, they're like putting drywall on, on office rooms. Like that's, that's the craziness that it was. That's um, like the depiction of you build it as you are flying, right? Yeah. It's So you are jumping off of the cliff and you're figuring out the parachute as you're free falling. Um, the good news is that you, know, you trust the people that you're falling with. So you know you're not going to die. You just know you need to act quick, trust, and, you know, be, be willing to ad- adapt and adjust quickly. Mm. But having to ramp up so quickly, was funding an issue or given kind of the industry background, maybe the funding was already available for you? That, that's a fantastic question. And, you know, people wonder about that a lot too, especially with startups. Um, you have to be very protective of your resources and your team. Your, your team, the people who work on your team or for you or with you, that's your engine. That, those, that's the brand. That's mm-hmm. the culture that makes for a great product, a great service, a great deliverable. And you got to take care of them. You have to make them priority over the project, which means as, you, as we were setting up um, you know, the scope of work as well as our, our contract, and that's just kind of who we are as a company anyway, you have a startup payment, a mobilization payment that at least covers a certain amount of, you know, that onboarding process so that you're not fronting the project for the client. Um, and, and it's hard. Because, no, no. <laughs> I mean, and it's hard, right? It's so tempting because when you're a startup, you're excited to get the work. You want to have that nice client logo on your, you know, on your portfolio. So you're, you'll kind of do anything. Um, and you have to remember not to forget who you are and not to forget that you're also bringing something to the table. So you, you gotta, you, you have to be covered to a certain extent. And I think a lot of it is also trust, um, you know, doing your research and knowing what company you're, you're, you're starting to work with. If it's a new company, do your research. And if it's a company or a team that you already have a relationship, there might be a little bit of flexibility in terms of how much that mobilization, you know, amount or payment is, but you have to value what you bring to the table as a, as a leader in whatever industry you're in and not sell that away or not, not give it away for free, you know? No, that's a good point. You have something to offer as well. And don't let people walk all over you because you oh, think, yeah. you know, I'm a startup. I'm, I'm just happy to get the work. Like, exactly. no. Oh, someone was actually talking about this the other day where they were like, there's a difference between, he, he was giving an analogy about, you know, coffee shops saying you can decide to start a coffee shop and, and, you know, sell the best coffee and so does the next coffee shop owner right next to you. And if the, the measure of success is just based on how many coffee cups you can pour and how many orders you can take, eventually you're going to have a customer who's going to say, no, this is crap and I'm going to go next door. As opposed to positioning your coffee shop as a service, as a, as an, a source of expertise, as a strategic partner to mm-hmm. elevate that customer's experience, right? then all of a sudden they're not just buying coffee, they're buying a relationship, they're buying a brand, they're buying a lifestyle and association, which makes it a lot harder for them to go to someone else. And that exactly. just trusting and, and fighting for who you are as a company and as an entrepreneur or as a startup, you know, it doesn't mean you have to be so established. So true. I have to say your company's growth sounds really seamless. Was that? <laughs> no. Why would you think that? Like, don't don't be misleading your guests. Like, so, I mean, let us know. Give us some a little bit of insight. What were your challenges? I, were and are. I mean, it, it's always. I think ultimately, you know, 
we are an entertainment development company and where we ultimately are headed and where we've started pivoting more towards is ownership of our brands and being able to not only design and develop these experiences, but operate them and own them and essentially license them out to others. Interesting. Um, so we've been very successful in developing it for other people. So in that capacity, you're a design consultant. You are bringing in the service to, to conceive the idea, come up with a strategic plan, develop it, produce it, run it for them, and then hand them the keys and say, Godspeed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's great. But what that means is that there's a cycle of, of chasing, trying to chase work, mm-hmm. which is awesome, but you're not, you're not chasing work in a vacuum. You're chasing work uh, in a very competitive environment, which is fine, but also with things that are completely out of your control, such as you have a client that it's moving forward with and everything is, is ready to go. And then COVID happens and then all of a sudden no work, right? Yeah. Or, or they completely change their direction because there's been an internal restructuring. And so now everything that's been developed in terms of relationship up until this point now needs to be reset. And so that, you know, there's a shelf life too on, on at least from a new business standpoint on when thing, when conversations start to when they actually turn on, which means you're having to reset again and again. And it's doable. It's nothing unique to us, but man, it's exhausting. And our industry is very project-based. It's kind of similar to the, the film industry where your teams are staffed based on the needs of the project, at least mm-hmm. for us. We like to, we're, we're pretty smart about keeping our overhead efficient and, and not having too many people on payroll unless we really need to mm-hmm. or unless the project can sustain it. And our industry, our freelancers, our designers, they're used to that mindset. Um, they're also always chasing. So what that means is that you're, you know, there's a, there's a rinse and repeat in terms of staffing up that happens constantly. And ultimately where you want to be is, you know, ownership. You want to, you want to be able to stand by the concepts and the experiences that you're putting out in the market and also make money while you sleep, <laughs> you know? And so uh, that's, that's always been our goal as a company. And fortunately we've been, we've been making a lot of headway in, in pivoting into that direction so that it's not always about services. Uh, that we're providing, but services that we're providing towards our work that we can eventually, um, you know, have royalties and licensing fees from. So would you say once you accomplish that, you would have made it, the proverbial made it as a company? As a company? Yeah. As a company, for sure. Um, it's something that, I mean, my co is our, our sort of tagline is the entertainment development company. Um, development, not entertainment design, not entertainment consulting, not entertainment dabble, you know. So development is really putting on the the real estate hat in a way, which is how do you take a dirt piece of of land and turn it into a master planned oasis, right? That isn't just about architecture and building homes. It's about vision. It's about seeing what the possibilities are with this piece of land, starting to lay in the partners that could come in to elevate it. It's about community building. It's about long-term planning and investment. And in a, way, in a weird way, that's not too far off from entertainment, where entertainment isn't anymore just something that you bring into as a, as an off, like as a last-minute thought. It's something that is now, at least in the smart developments, it's an anchor 
to a lot of these master planned communities. Mm. Um, and it could be a fountain, it could be a shopping center, it could be a museum and experience, it could be a district or a corridor, but it's integral to how lifestyles and culture is created. Um, mm. And so you have to almost think of it as a developer. And developers about having long-term revenue coming in. They are just about building the land and then selling it off. They are like, no, we will have a long-term stake Stake will be long-term stakeholders in this. And I think that's the mindset that we take at Micro2, at least. Hmm. But I do have to ask, I guess, a, a little bit about the elephant in the world right now. I, yeah. I would say for the first time in, in I don't know how many years, Disneyland um, closed. And so what was going on behind your closed doors when COVID first hit and some of your projects were being impacted? Yeah, Um I, man, it, it was a scary time and it is still kind of scary just because there's still so many unknowns. Mm. But the first, you know, the first couple of weeks in, in March when all the shutdowns started happening, if you recall, there was so much uncertainty and, and triggered reactions to things. Um, we were really smart in, in shutting down pretty quickly and having and pivoting to remote work environment. And that was a lot easier for us to do um, compared to a lot of our other colleagues or other companies in our industry, because we're already a, a nimble, small team. Mm. So the ability to work from home and to take your equipment and, and communicate from home didn't require too much of, of a change in process. Um, but it did require us to make sure that we put systems in place pretty early on in terms of communication and dialogue. But man, I'll tell you, watching the dominoes fall in the you know in our industry has been scary because um, these are livelihoods that are being lost. These are our friends and our colleagues and our friendly competitors that are losing um, their their source of income. And it's not to say that we were removed from that uh, as well. I mean, we we were set up to do some really fun things at some of these major you know events, like at South by and at Comic Con. But I think where we were able to adapt, um, and which is kind of the mindset that I, I like to adopt even for my personal life was, you know, making sure that we didn't have all our eggs in one basket. Um, and you'll find that a lot of the, the companies, not just in our industry, but just in general that are getting hardest hit are the ones that have been very successful, but with a very specific vertical. Mm. Um, and man, you have to be flexible. You got to mm -hmm. have different spokes happening, you know. Diversify your risk. The cogs, yeah, multi, you gotta have multiple cogs because if it's just one awesome thing, all it takes is one, you know, tragedy mm -hmm. and it comes to a grinding halt. So we, you know, we design theme parks, but that's not all we do. We do um, visitor centers, we develop master plan communities, we work with architects, with municipalities, with brands. Um, you know, and so that has allowed us to be able to have a little bit more buoyancy uh, mm -hmm. in reaction rather than um, being so hard hit that we couldn't move forward. And I think also because we're theater people at heart, man, if you're a theater person, you know that show must go on mentality to your core, right? Mm -hmm. So you're not just the actress, you're the stage manager, you're the house manager, you're taking tickets, you're, you know, you're figuring, you're mopping the stage. So that mentality of being able to do multiple things or readjust so that you're not just now free forging them, chief development officer. No, now you're going to have to write that treatment. Now you're going to have to be the creative director on this project and be hands-on. Mm -hmm. um, you have to put your ego aside and say, what's the good of the company? And how do we 
adapt our skills and, and brush up on things that we haven't done in a long time so that we can be efficient in our costs and in our overhead, but also still be able to react to new business or new clients or new opportunities and not feel like, oh crap, we can't do that anymore because we don't have that one person who knew how to fix the light. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> you gotta be able to learn fast. Um, it's coming back to the garage days. Yeah. We're not in the garage. That's 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 you know I feel fortunate and blessed. But man, I never forget those days. I just yeah. don't because you never know and you still need to be able to be flexible and nimble and put your ego aside because you just never know. Yeah. And even today, I would say new opportunities and new industries are being born out of this year. So you need to be adaptable and you need to be able to um, capture the opportunity fairly quickly before the the market starts to get saturated. I actually see the landscape right now as the crazy opportunity. And it, it's, it may not feel that way, but let me tell you, there's so much opportunity right now because the playing field has been leveled. No one has an advantage on how we're going to move forward, on what miracle product, except for the vaccine, hopefully, um, <laughs> on what miracle product is going to change everything for everyone. No one. Mm. All the previous models are, you know, have this new cell line in there that has, that is essentially COVID mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how do you adapt and, and what's the future of your business? So because the playing field has been equalized, I strongly feel that anything goes in terms of problem solving. So if you have an idea that you've always thought, wouldn't it be great if, why not now? I mean, when, when else, but now, um, and the, the only difference is it's a, it's really for me a mindset thing. The factors that would have hindered you before COVID still exist today. So COVID is just one more rung on that ladder, but it's not the rung that all of a sudden makes it impossible to pursue anything. Exactly. It is the rung though that makes a lot of other people nervous about trying that new thing. So why not you? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely opens the playing field. That's for sure. Oh yeah. Now, what parting advice would you have for any of the budding entrepreneurs listening who are looking to go off script and, st- and maybe start something that others may not understand? Oh, um, embrace being an underdog. Embrace the gift of being underestimated. Because when you're underestimated, no one's paying attention to you, which means you can go about your business. Mm. <laughs> you can work without naysayers. You can pursue and try things and go off the beaten path. And when you're going off the beaten path, there's less likely of a blueprint. And so you can break the rules a little bit and and fail fast, but still try it. And Mm -hmm. you'll never know what you'll stumble on. So there's actually an advantage to being underestimated and and being unknown. And surround yourself with people who aren't going to be dream crushers. You know, it's really easy for people to impart wisdom based on how they see themselves, what their capacity um, is, and also what, you know, what their successes have been. So really be discerning and protective about the people you let into your dreams and protect it, like fight for it, protect it, and embrace that it is uh, a hidden secret and just bury down and do the work. Mm, That's such great advice. Free, this has been an amazing conversation. So for anyone listening that wants to follow the journey, yours personally, and also from my co-to, where can we find you? Oh, thank you for asking. Look at me about to do a plug. Of course. Um, 
for it. <laughs> you can, I mean, officially, you know, you visit our website, myco2.com. It's a great starting point to get a sense of who we are as a company and at the very least, our industry. And, you know, hit me up on Instagram at freeforgendam. Um, you'll find me. I'm always, always, always excited and thrilled to answer questions about our industry specifically. I, I feel a little bit like an ambassador just because, you know, there's so many people who are new to it, but there's so much opportunity for growth. The theme entertainment industry is writers, designers, artists, architects, engineers, um, you know, musicians. I mean, it really is this intersection of all these different disciplines. So you'd be project managers. So you'd be surprised at how welcoming and inclusive it is in terms of opportunity. Um, so I'm happy to chat with anyone, DM me, but you can find me on Instagram at freeforgendam or you can visit our website um, and to get a little bit more information on our, on our company and definitely on our industry. Perfect. She offered. So you guys definitely take her up on that offer. <laughs> I know it's a ballsy offer, but listen, you, you won't know until you know. So just ask the question, the very least, you know, I'll get back to you as soon as I can, but I'll do my best to be honest. And uh, thank you for having me on and for talking about this because I think your platform is amazing. And thank you. And I'm hoping that as people are listening to you and watching you grow, you know, that they can say, I knew her when, because, you know, she's off script isn't about being off script. It's about charging or, or forging your own path and creating your own blueprint. Exactly. And scary, but man, you, you will never regret it. Oh, well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Free. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Hi, Offscripters. I'm so glad you made it to the end of this episode. If you enjoy listening to our show, please pay it forward by sharing us with your network. Between episodes, you can find me on Instagram. Our handle is at She's Offscript, or you can catch up on past episodes at She's Offscript.com. See you on the next one.